If you've got a Bible, um, can you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah? Um, it's quite easy these days if you've got a phone with you because you can just look at the contents and click through. If not, it's kind of halfway through the Bible. If you get to Psalms, you're a little bit too far. If you get to Job, you're a bit too far the other way. But, um, anyway, it's in the middle, Nehemiah and chapter 8. And uh, we're in the middle of a, a teaching series through this man's memoirs, essentially 2,400 year old memoirs about the, 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 the city of Jerusalem. And it's an incredible moment still that the nation of Israel talk about to this moment. And the city of Jerusalem, as we all know, is still a highly contested place. Probably none other around the world is more contested than this city. And we are finding out in these moments the, the return of God's people to the city. God had promised in the early moments of the setting up of the city that he would choose of all the places on the earth to dwell within this city. He established a temple within the city. His glory dwelt in the middle of this city. Sacrifice was made in the city. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you went to this city. It was the national identity of Israel. It's hard to overestimate the significance of this city in the life of the people of God. It, was, it identified them as distinct from the rest of the nations. Where did God dwell? In the city of Jerusalem. So the walls around the city represented the security of the identity of the nation of Israel in their relationship with God that made them distinct from the other nations. Without this city, they would be lost in their sin. And God promises even to one day fulfill his promise to bring a ruler who would rule not just for a generation, but forever and ever and ever and ever. And he would arise from this city. All the promises of God hung in the balance around the destiny of this city. If there were no city, the promises of God were on the shelf and maybe the purposes of God would not be worked out in the future generations. So you've got to understand how important this was for the nation. And yet human nature kicks in and the people of Israel decide to walk away from God. And as they walk away from God, they walk away from the blessings of God and they walk away from the promises of God. And so the protection that was, was there because of the presence of God was removed. Babylon, the empire, come and sweep through. They ransack the nation. They take people off. And then Assyria comes through, sweeps through the city as well. And after two kind of... Um, empire sweeping throughs which is a terrible sentence i should have worked on that better um the city is destroyed decimated literally you're walking through if you see some pictures through cities that have been bombed it's rubble the streets if you see some of those pictures of london post second world war this would have been the city of jerusalem they would have walked through homes that would have been rubble some standing some not some people living there making good some people living in faraway nations and Nehemiah who had become a high profile uh, leader in a foreign king's land hears that the, the, the city was still in ruins he gets his burden to go back and rebuild the physical structures of the city and so in many ways 
We could have stopped this series last week with AJ's talk in chapters 6 and 7. In many ways, Nehemiah could have just stopped his memoirs at this point because in chapter 7, da-da, the walls have been finished. Like the job that he went to do seemingly is done. The walls are finished, the physical structures are redone, and yet there are another six chapters to go. You're very welcome. We've got to stick around for a little while longer. Why? Because Nehemiah was not content with just building the physical walls to bring security back to the city. He was concerned that the spiritual state of the people would be renewed as well. And it's so easy, isn't it, as, as people to be so concerned with the externals, what things look like, the physical structures around things, that we can neglect the internal, the soul. You know, we can be so concerned with the bank account, how things are looking, how we look, how we feel, our reputation, our Insta account, whatever it might be for us, that we spend all the time on the externals and yet forget the spiritual. We can be outwardly successful. Nehemiah could have built the walls and yet the people spiritually would have been far from God still. Say, hey, the people of come back to God. Physically we're close to God but spiritually they could have been a million miles away. And so Nehemiah was concerned to bring them physically back into proximity with God's presence and to bring them spiritually back to him. And so we get this amazing moment in chapter 8 where this spiritual awakening breaks out. God knows that for you and me easy to get distracted from the things that really matter hands up if you know like what i'm talking about it is easy to get distracted from the things that matter it is easy in this social media world to look at the glitz and the glamour and the new things that are around us and compare ourselves to that and get concerned with that and forget the things of our soul forget the spiritual state of where we are forget god life death heaven hell forget these grand big realities and get more concerned with i've got another like on instagram i'm doing amazing today <laughs> and so god builds in patterns to the rhythms of our lives that help bring us back to him so every every seven days god has built in this thing called sabbath for most of us today a day where we stop from work we pause we think we have space to be with friends to reflect to read the scriptures to pray to God to get his perspective on our life again God has also in the Old Testament instituted every seven years this Sabbath that would be given to God's people this resting this different year that would be for pause and reflection and God had also instituted into every year every seventh month in the year that there would be a month where it would be basically like a sabbatical, like a spiritual sabbatical where you would take time to deliberately engage with the scriptures, with the community, with your soul, with God, and reflect, how am I doing inside? And what we have in this moment, in chapter 8, is them getting to this seventh month, this pause in their year, where God asks them to come aside and see how it is with their soul. Let me ask you how it's going with your soul this morning. Don't answer me out loud unless you're really like extroverted and an external processor. Um, we get this at the end of chapter 7. It says this, When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, within the wall now. And that's deliberate. He's saying the month of sabbatical rest and reflection has come. 
And historically, the people had brought out the law of God, the book of God, and it was a moment where they listened to what God would say as a community and respond to him. And this is what we read in these moments. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So there are 12 gates around the city. One of them they gathered around here. I guess the week before they'd said, guys, we're going to be at the water gate at whatever it was. It looks like maybe 6 a.m. And they gather together and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel this wasn't just a social gathering says bring the book we want to hear from God so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and we're told this um, sorry and beside him stood deep breath Mattithiah Shema Aniah Uriah Hilkiah Masiah and on, on the right hand and Padiah Mishael Malkijah Hashem Hashbadana Zechariah Mashulam on his left and Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it all the people stood and we're told this happened from morning until midday this is Israel. This is with no shelter. This is probably through the heat of the morning into the midday. This is an intense moment with the book of God. Imagine the desire that was in their hearts that they gather together. I don't know whether they bought packed lunches. I'm guessing they bought some like, I would be thinking by 9 a.m. like I need my second breakfast now. I need, they, I don't know what would have happened, but there was a desire to be out and hear from God hour after hour after hour to have people explain it. I would have guessed discussions would have happened around. Ezra's read this, people explaining it. Let's discuss it. Should we pray? Should we, how, how are you doing on this? This is a Bible study like I would imagine none of us have been involved with. They were demonstrating a hunger for this book. I seem to say this as we're starting out as a church plant. It's one of my passions, one of my prayers, that we would be a people who are known for a passion for this book. A community who would consistently say, bring out the book. Where is the book? Bring out the book of the law of God because we need to hear from God. We want to know what God says to us. We want to know what God says to London. We want to know what he says about us because we are walking in the shallows for all of our lives. Even the conversations, you feel like you're just tipping your toe into the shallows of life and there is something in us that longs for depth and meaning and something that is everlasting and there should be something within our soul that rises out and says, I need to bring out the book. My prayer is that we're people who walk around life, sometimes like bringing out the book. You're in Starbucks and you've got half an hour and you're getting a coffee. Bring out the book. 
like forget Instagram like honestly like just put it to one side bring out the book we get gather in homes bring out the book you should get to church and if no one's brought out the book for 10 minutes there should be something in your heart saying bring out the book come let's hear from God like we've had enough of your wishy-washy opinions let's hear from God now because this is where everlasting life is found this is where when you open up the book when you bring out the book you unleash power do you know that if you feel powerless in your life today let me ask you a corollary question have you brought out the book recently because if you are bringing out the book in your life you are unleashing power in your life if you feel like you're walking on empty and you're getting through your days but emotionally you feel thin and you just get through your days let me ask you this are you bringing out the book because this book provides power to bring joy and peace and fullness and energy and vitality and perspective and an ability to let things in the past go an ability to see what God says about you that will provide a certain zing in your soul that's not a bible verse that's my paraphrase God can do that this book is the reason why I'm here today helping start a church I think this is why we're here aren't we I was 17 and I thought I knew the book because the book had been brought out for me many times in my hearing as a child going to church and I thought like I know the book I'd become pretty much numb to the teachings of Jesus in this book and yet in my teenage years as I tried to walk away from God I, I didn't find blessing I actually find a diminishment of my life I found my soul became thin I actually oddly became very thin because I developed anorexia which I didn't that's a really nice poetic way of saying it but anyway um, my soul and my body became thin um, I was depressed I was anxious I was lonely because I disconnected myself from the source of all life and energy. And I was trying to do it by myself. And it was a pastor who challenged me. He says, you need to stop just hearing what I say about the Bible. You need to read it for yourself. And I assumed I knew it until I actually bought the book out for myself and began reading the Gospel of Mark. And as I read the Gospel of Mark about the life of Jesus, the power of God was unleashed in my life and it changed me. If you met the 17 year old me and you met the now me me you would be surprised I have changed do you know why I was not some self-help course it was God who changed my life the power of God was unleashed through the words in this book and we want this power unleashed don't we so let's be people of this book if you ever get like 20 minutes into a sermon I haven't opened the book you can call out you have my permission to say Daniel bring out the book <laughs> this is what they do they're asking Ezra we need the book of God now here's the thing I mean if you're a guest here with us today and you're not a believer you're probably totally bemused because you like you can't believe probably that there is still a community people who are reading this book most people assume that reading of this book is like now for the British Library as a research project to find out what people used to think and you might be amongst us now thinking oh my goodness 
there are still historic traditionalists who are reading this book and taking it seriously. You genuinely might be thinking that because generally people think today this book is out of touch, out, out, out of fashion, contradictory, not relevant for our today's purposes in our modern society and how morality and sexuality have moved on. This book stands anachronistically against everything that's going on today. You might think like, what on earth are you doing bringing out this book? You're like, the last 10 minutes made no sense to you whatsoever. You're like, who are these people? I would suggest most of our most of our concerns around reading this book come down to one deep, deep, deep concern. Because as a nation a few hundred years ago, we would quite happily go to external sources to find out how we should do life. Doctors, institutions, universities, professors, they had answers that we thought meant stuff for our life. And the Bible was reverenced, whether we submitted to it or not, we did go to the Bible and say, this is probably where we are in history. How did all of this come about? Probably a God designed us, made us, we're sustained by this God. Whether we choose, chose to accept that or submit to it or not, there was this general sense that there was an external authority out there that probably was the standard by which we should live. And yet today we have shifted and the idea that there would be an authority external to us that would tell us how to do life is a, a bizarre thought because the source of authority for most of us now is what happens inside our soul. We are now suspicious of institutions. We're suspicious of those who would tell us this is how life works. We are into self-help, not asking for others to help us. Michael Gove famously said in 2016, didn't he? The, the British people do not want experts anymore. That's kind of this general feeling like we don't need experts anymore. Why? Because I, I know inside me who I am and how best to live my life. So the final source of authority for most Londoners today is what is happening in my soul. So the idea that someone external to me could tell me how to live in a way that I would flourish is just totally bizarre to us. But let's just go th work through the thought experiment that if that suggestion is true and you look at the mental health of our city right now, where is this taking us? And if we are in a position where we are now living with increasing rates of anxiety and depression, my suggestion is because we are trying to walk away from God, the source of all energy in life, and if we're in a situation where we don't want anyone to tell us how to live our life, where would that lead us as a nation? Just work it out as a thought experiment. Like if you had a nation who refused to take any advice from anyone else, because what happened in here was the most important thing. Where would that leave you, even in yourself, in 10 or 20 years time, if you never took anyone's other opinion on board? Yeah, a mess, thanks, Mandy. I'm suggesting that it wouldn't be very helpful for us as a nation. And it feels like we're in this experiment together that, why don't we try this and allow everyone to determine meaning for themselves? And we're in this amazing position now where this kind of expressive individualism triumphs over and tramples over logic and reason, whereby two completely contradictory things could actually be true at the same time. We are blinded to this reality. Actually, we're saying contradictory things and saying it's all okay.
And a lot of people think that they know the Bible. Because we've walked through Christendom. We, are, we know the church, we know Christianity, we know the Bible, and we're now going to move beyond it. Let me ask you this. If you do think you know the Bible, have you read the actual words of the Bible? And not just three verses of it, but actually read it. This was a challenge that came to me at 17. Like, you read the Bible for yourself. You go back to the source for yourself. Don't just go on hearsay. What are the actual sources? And you make up your own mind. We have to read it for ourselves. This is my challenge to you. Actually pick up, bring out the book and read it. It's free on like 100 billion apps now. You can get the Bible. Just read it on the way to work. Let me, you know Lee Mack, the comedian Lee Mack? I've read this before, but I have to read it again because it's just too good. Lee Mack, well, he was on Desert Island Discs about two years ago. And near the end of Desert Island Discs, you get the works of Shakespeare in the Bible. And most people just let that go past. Some people, they say, I'll, I'll give you the Bible back. Lee Mack says this, at the end of Desert Island Discs, having been interviewed about his life, he says these words. He says, I'm glad that you get the Bible because I would read the Bible. I think it's quite odd that people like myself in their 40s are quite happy to dismiss the Bible, but have never read it. I always think that if an alien came down and you were the only person they met and they said, what's life all about? What's this earth all about? Tell us everything. And you said, well, there's this book here that purports to tell you everything. Some people believe it to be true. Some people don't believe it to be true. And they say, wow, what's it like? And you go, hmm, I don't know. I've never read it. It would be an odd thing, wouldn't it? So at the very least, read it. I thought, amazing. This book purports to tell you the meaning of life. And billions of people have accepted that as truth. If you are here today and you are thinking, is there meaning to life? At the very least, the very least, why not read this book? Amen. Back to the passage. Three helps on how to get into the book. This is what's happening. Firstly, the people of God in this moment were listening to the book of the law attentively. Let me just say this. When you do read the book, listen attentively. We're in an age of distraction. It is so easy. And I do this in the morning sometimes. I can be reading the Bible like my, my soul is being set on fire by the words I'm reading. And without like knowing it subconsciously, I end up scrolling through days worth of Twitter. And I, I, I have no recollection of how I went from Nehemiah chapter 7 to yesterday's Twitter thread about Donald Trump. And I'm like, ha. So I've just got this subconscious thing that is continually getting distracted. And when you do that, you are not pulling the power out of the book. So you have to get your mind in an attentive position. Find out where and when and how you are going to read the book in a way that is going to allow you to pay attention. For me, it's got to be early morning, there's got to be very strong coffee, and I've got to be in my study with a closed door. Only then can I actually read the Bible attentively. Otherwise, my mind's like flitting over everywhere, and then I'm listening. The first thing to do is they're attentive. The second thing, if you want to pull the power out of the book, is read the book with an expectation that you are going to meet God. 
Because there are two ways you can read the Bible. You can read the Bible firstly as like a moral guide for your life. Hey, here's, some book, here's a book and I'm going to get some more tips for my week. Like here's a few more like how do I navigate this? How do I do this? How do I like get more moral? You can, you can read it like that or you can read it as a book that is revealing the full glory and nature of God and who he is. And the scriptures are all about God. They reveal the glory of God. They reveal the power of God. They reveal the beauty of God. They reveal everything about who God is. And the way to have the power unleashed into your life is not to come saying, like, oh, I need some help. It's like, God, where are you? Like AJ said, he's left parts of his body everywhere so we can see him and know him. Find God in the book. This is what they do. Because we're told this in verse 6. We saw Ezra, as he was reading, he says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this wasn't just an academic exercise as let me learn some things to help me in my life to be the best me that I can possibly be. They were coming to the book with an expectation that they were going to meet with God. They were worshipping as they listened. Jesus continually had to rebuke religious people when he was around because they would continually read the Bible as though it were like the top 10 list of how to live your best life before God. And they kept trying to pull out law after law after law, saying, oh, here's some more things you should be doing this week. As we teach the Bible every week, we're not doing it so that we can learn some more things of how to live. What we are doing is we are wanting to meet and encounter God. And so Jesus says this when he comes and he rebukes them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, he says, that bear witness about me, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, you keep coming to the Bible trying to find like tips on how to live. And he says, but all of these are revealing the glory of who I am. So read the Bible as though God is revealing himself. When Jesus had been crucified and then raised from the dead, he does this amazing Bible study on the way to Emmaus, a town outside of Jerusalem. And he tells them, these two guys who are leaving Jerusalem, thinking the whole Christianity project is just over now. And, it, and he tells them, what you've got to understand is that from the beginning of the scriptures, Moses, the prophets and the law, all of this was pointing to me. And he does this incredible Bible study. He says all of the Old Testament was actually a revelation of who God is in, in me. So we have to come to the scriptures finding God. Otherwise, Leviticus, if you get to that point in your Bible reading, will become very difficult. If you are trying to work out how the measurements of the tabernacle 3,000 years ago are relevant for your life as a nurse on a Tuesday morning, you are going to struggle. But if you come to Leviticus don't like, God, display your glory to me, you will find in this tabernacle the beauty of the, the gold ringlets and the, dim, the, the, the dimensions, all that God put in place to demonstrate just the vaguest of hints of the beauty of who the God must be who resides in this tabernacle. It changes everything. The scriptures reveal God. And thirdly, very practically, get help. It's not unspiritual to get help. 
because we read this in verse 7 also some more names Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading and these are Jewish people reading Jewish scriptures in the same culture they were saturated in the story of God and yet they still needed someone to help them understand and unpack what this is going to mean for your life now how much more then for us who are like separated by 2,000 years of history language culture geography history etc are we going to need some help so my suggestion if you want to pull the power out of the book is don't go too far in your bible reading without asking someone for like if you come across something weird like ask someone like i've read this weird thing like someone who you know might know the bible and say do you, what, what does this mean or go to a book or google or something google carefully but maybe like google like find out because the bible is weird amen like there's a lot of weirdness in the bible there's floating axe heads there's a sun that stands still a point there's a wall that falls down because someone blew some trumpets there are some strange there's a man who says i'm god and then he rises from the dead again there are some strange things that happen in the bible and if we just put like if we never investigate those we will never pull the full power out of the book when they do hear this word two things happen firstly they're cut to the heart because they've realized the depths and the ways in which they've walked away from God and the second thing that happened is their heart is filled with joy because they realize the forgiving power of God over their lives it's this amazing moment and so we read this in verse 9 Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God and they say do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law what's happening God is being displayed in all his majesty, all the promises of God, the story of God is being read to them hour after hour after hour. And as this happened, people begin to break down and weep and mourn over their sin. They begin to realize the depths and the ways in which they've walked away from the God who loves them. And they are broken by it. And for us in our modern day, this feels like quite an offensive moment because how how can that be a good thing like we're into chipper sound bites quotes things that will slap you on the back and say that you're an amazing person and way to go and and yet here we are the people of god meeting with god and they are broken as they recognize their sin if you are in a relationship with someone anyone you will know that at some point they will disagree with you any married people here yes right the love of your life two months into being married you think oh my goodness you disagree fundamentally with what i think about x and you walk with this uncomfortable like oh okay even the post person who is closest to me has a fundamentally different opinion about life 
how much more if you entered a relationship in, with the infinite and perfect and holy God, would you expect him to at points maybe gently disagree with your perspective on life? So the love of your life, two months in, honeymoon's done, etc. you realize, what the heck? Like you don't agree with me on everything and affirm me in everything that I think and feel and want to do about life? Hey, Mr. Micah, this is my son, by the way. He just likes to run around. Um, how much more a perfect God who is not a creature like us? And uh, that's all right. <laughs> no one noticed, did we? No. <laughs> We're going for seamless transitions here. <laughs> You're right, mister. Bye, Micah. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. Oh, <laughs> I do love him. It's just slightly awkward when you're trying to like speak and you know all that stuff. Anyway, um, yeah. So if you, if you come into a relationship with God, it would be a it would be a an odd thing, would it not? If the infinitely perfect God who made everything and sustains even molecules right now gave you the thumbs up to everything that you think and feel. He's like, oh wow, you've actually cracked all of life and you're a finite creature with sin in your heart. I'm, I'm amazed. Like, you, would you be worried about that God if you walked around with a God who basically affirms everything that you think and feel? Like if Chris told me like, oh no, no, my, my God says that everything that I do is absolutely perfect and fine. I would be slightly worried about the God that Chris has. We would all know that like, that's a fictitious being in your mind who's just like this big thumbs up in the sky. Like, yeah, you're amazing. Do it would be normal, would it not, to be confronted by a God and, and be challenged. It offends us because we think that we are the source of all meaning and authority in life. But when we come to God, we realize, actually, there are some things in our life that may need to change. My views on the world, how things began, how things are going to end, my behavior, my thoughts, my actions, my patterns in life, maybe they were wrong in the past. And the Bible has this strangely high view of mourning and repentance over past failures. Where we'd say, no, 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 that, don't do that. that. That would hurt their self-esteem. Actually, the Bible says that the precursor to the release of the power of God in your life is a recognition that you were once far away from God and wronged Him. We've got this approach that if you ever feel bad in life now, basically, you've got to do a Taylor Swift and just shake it off like spiritually theologically obviously like somehow you've got to like if you feel bad in life like that's socially constructed like there is that's an old-fashioned social construct that you've got to move past and that's what's making you feel bad you've got to be true to yourself the only authority is you the only sin is not being true to yourself so you be true to what's inside you and if anyone makes you feel bad for that then you should just put them to one side squash them out of your life and you move on and you be true to you we squash a voice that has a contrary view to us we don't embrace it and that leaves us increasingly with this vague sense of guilt and anxiety and shame without knowing where it comes from and we try and brush it off but i would suggest as londoners we are struggling to do it you ever had that moment where the, 
there's this really strange thing that if you've been ill for a while there is this like odd joy and hope that comes from having a diagnosis you know that like actually at this stage i don't even mind if it's bad i just want to know what's going on with my life a few years back i had these like concurrent no not concurrent that's like multiple i had regular chest infections like concurrent recurrent. oh recurrent thanks on the Haley. someone who can speak english i don't know why i do this job it's like the worst job for me slightly dyslexic um just the, the, these these chest infections again and again and again and like i you know these like weird times especially with men like tori said you should listen to your body i'm like i don't even know what that means like i've got to go to work like i've got to, i've got things to do and i just got used to feeling like i'm dragging my body around like this like grayness through my body and this chest infection after child, i'll go back to my antibiotics no don't do it in this time you've had too many whatever except have some more rest and i go into this place after about a year of just feeling utterly dreadful and this like weird sense of like i know something's wrong but i can't quite put my finger on it and i was sleeping like terribly i was losing weight and you know that feeling if you've ever been in that place with like long-term illness and you don't know what it is it's like a, a, a really unnerving place to be so you're like why do I feel like this? Why do I continually feel this like, ah? And it all came to a head one Easter service. I remember it because I was leading the service, but I could hardly even speak. And it got to like 4 a.m. on the Monday morning and I was like, another night of just hacking my throat, whatever. And I was like, I've just got to get to A&E. Still nervous that I would just say, look, you need some rest, have some paracetamol. I, I genuinely thought I'm wasting their time. I don't know why I'm here. And anyway, this lady looked at me. She shocked me because she called someone and just walked me straight through everything to the wards. They did some tests and within like half an hour, they said, oh, you've got pneumonia and you're not going home. And at that point, I was in one of these like, you know, these gowns, you know, like, that do like cover everything up apart from like, you know, like, why? On the Healy, why do they do that? Humiliate you in your worst moments. I just went to the loo and burst into tears. I was like, I just couldn't believe, like, it, there is something wrong with me. Something is wrong with me, and there is hope because they now know what is wrong with me. I would suggest we as Londoners need to know what is actually wrong with us. And it is not to crush someone's self-esteem to say that there is a holy loving God whom you have walked away from. That guilt, that vague sense of shame in your life, that sense of trying to hide stuff and wash it away, that's actually because there is guilt in your life. Is it possible that you feel guilty because there is guilt in your life? It's a massive thought for Londoners today. You said, like, I, I'm, uh, no way. Is it possible that we need to call people back to a God because there is actually guilt in people's life? Are these little warning signs of a hacking cough in our city because there is actually something wrong with our lungs? Are these senses of guilt and shame actually indications that there is guilt and that there is shame against an infinitely holy God whom we need to be reconciled with? This is where they got to in this place. But it doesn't stop there because not many people would turn up at church Sunday after Sunday if you were just told that you're a sinner and we all went home crying. <laughs> there is another sentence that follows and we get this. Then he said to them, 
go your way and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and he says do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength so the Levites calmed all the people saying be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them and then we're told in the next day they begin to celebrate this festival that is a precursor to Yom Kippur the day of atonement that the seventh month of the year was not just a moment where you reflected on maybe I've walked away from God in some areas but actually the day where God declares you are now forgiven in my name there is a reconciliation that can happen there is a coming back to me your sins can be washed clean you can be made new in me because of this day that is coming and so the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah say say basically go home prepare a great feast because you have been forgiven hallelujah there is great great festivities to be made so they say basically go and buy the best steak that you possibly can go and find the best bottle of red wine that you can go get some Jack Daniels go get some nice tiramisu lay your table fill it with food make great rejoicing because your God has favored you amen you are the people of God and God now looks over you in this atonement that has been made in Yom Kippur and you are now favored in his sight feeling mournful and regret and guilt and shame over sin is a precursor to the unlocking of the power of God in your life where forgiveness is bestowed if you are tr if you truly pursue that guilt and that shame it will lead you all the way through and it will unlock this door and suddenly on the other side of this door you will find this great banquet laid out for you and God beckoning you in saying come and eat with me because there is great rejoicing to be made because I've forgiven you in this good news eating is a good thing I think we all say amen to that but when you become a Christian eating isn't just eating just like things cease to just be things actually life takes on this whole new meaning when you walk with God what used to be just Monday ordinary things actually begin to brim with meaning and symbolism and life they didn't just say hey look take some time off from the Bible study and go have a nice meal that wasn't the point they said you need to go and celebrate like God has forgiven you how do you do that you need to make great rejoicing you need to bring out like not just a small chicken you need to get the extra large waitrose chicken not tesco's waitrose you need to make some great rejoicing because god has been good to you you need to celebrate celebrate like god has provided for you in all of his goodness you need to make out like god has taken your sin from you and he has plucked it and flicked it into the far galaxies that you will never see it again and you are now utterly clean never to be condemned in his sight you need to celebrate like it looks like that what does that look like I don't know that looks like loud music and great rejoicing that looks like just a celebration and a party you know imagine them going home that night saying right Nehemiah said we've got to make great rejoicing like let's how do we do this like get gathering tables filled with food and sweet drink 
and imagine them just eating late into the night and just looking up at the stars and remembering the promises that God gave to Abraham looking up at the same stars saying Lord we're, you, you've done it like we are here we're your people you promised that you would build a people and we're your people and you are continuing your promises to us we are under your blessing now and food continues even to our day to represent a symbol of the provision and goodness of God to us even in Genesis, where God lays out this whole garden of rich food. Why? To demonstrate, I'm providing for you out of my abundant goodness. God provided manna and quail for us in the wilderness. Not the literal us as Trinity, like, you know, people of God, us. Like, I am going to provide you out of my goodness. I'm, I'm, I'm a bountiful God. He says, go and celebrate like I've been bountiful to you in my forgiveness. Go and eat and make merry. And when Jesus comes along, it's hilarious because he's coming to save the world, right? And Luke says, Jesus comes eating and drinking. So like you would have asked Jesus early on in his ministry, so what's your strategy for you know, the whole save, saving of the world thing? What, what, how are you gonna go about doing this? Well, he says, well, my plan is to eat a lot of food and to drink drinks with a lot of friends. Like basically that was his modus operandi. Like I'm gonna eat a lot of food with a lot of people. That's how I'm gonna go about saving the world. And he even says, I am the bread of life because all of this physical stuff leads us to this point where actually we are not just to eat on physical food, but to eat on spiritual food. And Jesus says, all of this bountiful goodness points you to the final Yom Kippur in my body. And he says, I am the bread of life. Come to me, eat of me, and you will never hunger again. Can you imagine that? You, I'm walking through life and my internals are feeling like there's something in my internal being and like craving for something. Jesus says, if you come to me and eat of me, come feed your soul on who I am, you will be full. Imagine walking into work tomorrow and your soul is just full. You know that like Sunday afternoon, like after a roast feeling, like in your soul, I'm full. I'm at work, I'm full. The boss has just given me a really tough feedback on my last week's performance, but my soul is full because I'm feeding on God. Yeah, thank you, Cheeto. Let's bring some Togo expression to this meeting. This is good news. Amen? Jesus says, you come feed on me. This is where all this is going. So when we sit down and eat food, you need to always remember, don't just give thanks for the food, you give thanks, God, for being good to me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for this meal that we're gonna eat in just a moment, even in this place. It might just be sandwiches. Maybe make them M&S sandwiches today. Like, it's not just any sandwich today. This is a Sunday, holy unto the Lord, I'm a forgiven type sandwich. Like, I'm spending the extra pound fifty because God has forgiven me. I don't know. Like, like you make up your own mind but what does it look like for you to be represent the fact like god you provided for me my soul is free right now and i am feasting on him the psalmist said that my soul feasts on the lord as with fat and rich food like i come to god now and it's like my soul is eating the best of meals and i'm full in him this is what we have in the forgiveness of god that he has loved us because he loved us because he loved us demonstrated in Jesus Christ he gave us this meal didn't he the Lord's Supper 
represents ultimately this, this, this moment where we feed on God. That we actually eat some physical food and as we eat the physical food, it's like this anchoring to our life that demonstrates God's been good to me. So this is what we're going to do in just a minute. We're going to sing, and can it be? And we're going to sing it like we're making great rejoicing. And then we're going to go out and buy some sandwiches. We're going to go buy some lunch. And then we're going to gather back here. And we're going to have some bread. We're going to have some wine. And it's going to be up to you. But come up, get, some, get, get a glass. And as you're having sandwiches in twos, threes, fours or whatever, just take some and speak to one another and say the Lord has been good to us amen and just give thanks just say thank you Lord for providing for everything that my soul needs in this moment is that all right amen let me pray father thank you thank you for today thank you for giving us Jesus the bread of life thank you that there is satisfaction for our soul Thank you that there is a provision for our guilt and our shame. Thank you, Lord, that we can be forgiven because of you. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you provide for us. And I pray even now, would there be a great rejoicing in our hearts? Lord, would there be an expression of that in our hearts, I pray to you. An awareness of all the goodness and all the provision that you have made for us. That we would be like your people 2,400 years ago, going out to make, get some food to make great rejoicing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Can we stand together? And we're going to sing. And I just want to ask you just to lift your soul to God in these moments. This song expresses this, this question, and, and can it be? Like, this feels like it's too good. Like, how can I, my soul be forgiven eternally? Like, you can walk around for the rest of your life as a saint, made holy in God's sight. How can that be? Because of Jesus.